Good afternoon, Lucas. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Unsweden podcast uh, to talk to you about your work in cultural heritage and your thoughts on this year's theme. My name is Victoria and joining me here is Belle, my fellow 2021 editor of Unsweetened. Um, Lucas, would you like to introduce yourself and say a few words about the sort of work you do here at UNSW and your areas of academic research? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat to be able to do this. Um, Of course, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat for me to be able to be here and talk to you. My name is Lukas Lischinski. I am a professor at the School of Global and Public Law in the Faculty of Law and Justice here at UNSW. I am originally from Brazil, uh, but I have been here at UNSW for just under 10 years now. Fantastic. So as listeners may or may not know, this year's theme is Mythos, um, in which we have been asking contributors to think about the stories that humans have been sharing with each other for time and memorial and the ways they impact our understanding of the world and ourselves. So growing up, uh, did you have a favorite story, myth or folktale? I did. Um, I was very much very into folklore growing up and uh, uh, just as a part of normal education, but also out of my own interest. Um, I always like to look for and listen to the, and read those stories. Um, so can I have two favorites? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So they're both from uh, Brazilian folklore. Um, and the first one is the story of the Sassi Perere, um, which is essentially a trickster uh, or a gin-type uh, figure in Brazilian folklore. Um, um, the Sassi Perere is a monopod, so it's a one-legged uh, youngster uh, who has magical powers. Um, it's, originally, it's part of the indigenous Tupi-Guarani kind of mythology in Brazil, and then it got co-opted by colonizers and enslaved people. Um, so the, the Sassi became, uh, went from being just an indigenous person to being a black person as the story kind of evolved. Um, and it's essentially, yes, it's this trickster feature, uh, figure that kind of, um, appears, uh, out of, uh, out of a dust devil, um, and is able to also magically disappear. Um, and uh, helps uh, guide people through the forest, but often enough actually tries to guide them in wrong ways around the forest um, uh, when they are up to no good, right? So the, 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 because of that connection to the forest, there's also um, a connection to environmentalism there, um, but that's more fleshed out in a different uh, myth, um, which is more traditionally indigenous uh, or more uh, still quintessentially indigenous. But anyway, this trickster figure um, helps, um, yeah, helps people or usually tricks people. That's the, just the nature of it. Um, and um, and this jinn kind of character granting wishes uh, for people who trap the the sassi or uh, capture the sassi's hat uh, can also be related. May also be related to the enslavement of African Muslims in Brazil, um, who then added this kind of element. The um, the idea of you know appearing out of dust and uh, um, and, uh, and and granting wishes and being trapped being trapped in a bottle kind of thing right um, so that's the, the first myth um, I always like this idea of the trickster um, and then the second one who's not a trickster is called the Negrinho do Pastoreio or um, the little black shepherd uh, you would translate it as um, who was an enslaved boy uh, who ends up being falsely accused of uh, losing a horse. 
Um, and because of having lost his horse, uh, he's eventually tortured and killed. So it's a really sad story. Uh, but then he resurrects, um, and, um, Trium, or not, well, it's a ghost appearance rather than a resurrection. Uh, but, you know, there's this whole triumphant thing of appearing on the back of this horse, um, again, and, and, and since it, it can, it's kind of this figure that people still kind of invoke um, when they're trying to find something that they have misplaced or lost. Um, there's a bit of a Christian undertone going on with this story, um, but it is uh, a positive story in that, even though it is a person who was enslaved, right, um, it's, it was not a, a criminal slave person, right, so it's a good portrayal of an enslaved person, even though the, he had a tragic uh, and to his biological life, um, which is one of the things I, I'm kind of drawn to in this story. Interesting. Uh, may I ask, were you, did you learn about these folk tales in your youth or in school, family? How did you come to learn about these? Yeah, we learned about them in primary school, like third grade or, well, year three, I suppose you would say it here. Um, so we learned about them early on and then they just kind of come up every now and again uh, during primary school and then they just kind of become ingrained. Uh, but then also in the 20th century, this uh, uh, intellectual uh, kind of compiled these, uh, all these myths uh, into a collection of stories and they became hugely popular. Um, so everyone kind of just kind of read them as well as kids. Um, and there were TV shows around them and, uh, comic strips and all sorts of things. So the, uh, they, they very much permeate uh, Brazilian popular culture. Awesome. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about, you know, whether or not these um, myths have um, been repurposed into, you know, media and um, shows. And so it's interesting that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Okay, so we wanted to know what's something you've read recently that has enriched the way that you look at the world? Fiction or nonfiction? We'll start with fiction. All right, so fiction, um, the, the latest thing I read that really made an impact on me is a, a book by Robert Jones Jr. called The Prophets. Um, it came out earlier this year. Uh, I think the publisher is Hachette. Um, and um, it's, essentially, it's a historical uh, fiction type work um, about this uh, couple of uh, enslaved uh, teenagers um, both boys who kind of meet when they are small kids and then they just kind of naturally become inseparable and start a relationship. Um, so it, it kind of picks up when they are, you know, well into their relationship, which is still a secret, but it's about how this relationship kind of gets discovered uh, and, um, and kind of unsettles uh, the balance of life, both for... Uh, enslaved persons in that plantation in the U.S. South, um, and uh, this, the, you know, the slave owners and, and the, the white people who live in that plantation, and uh, so it, it kind of follows that unraveling of uh, the, the the entire um, place, uh, but it also weaves in a lot of um, echoes of ghosts from the past, some of which go as far back as Africa. So there's a lot of African mythology in the way that the story is structured and told. Um, and then there's the whole issue of transportation of their ancestors. Um, and, and so it, it, each chapter is told from the perspective of a different 
uh, character in the story, um, plus the, the the chapters in the middle, which are those yeah those ancestral ghosts kind of thing, uh, which kind of um, drive a lot of the big themes in the story. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, stuff there about racial justice. There's a lot of stuff about uh, queerness and uh, and being queer in in history and in different contexts, right? So in Africa, in in, in the Americas, and so it, it's a really well written novel and uh, a very uh, beautiful uh, love story in many ways. Yeah. Oh, okay. And did you have a nonfiction choice? I did, um, which is a book by Charles King called The Reinvention of Humanity, um, A Story of Race, Sex, Gender, and the Discovery of Culture. So the subtitle changes from one edition to the next. Uh, this is a subtitle, I think, in the British edition. Um, um, and it was published by Penguin uh, last year, so 2020. Um, and it's essentially a, it's almost like a collective biography of the... The Franz Boas uh, circle in um, in uh, at Columbia University. So Franz Boas is a German emigre and one of the parents of, uh, or if not the parent of cultural anthropology. Um, so it's all about the 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 circle of uh, well graduate students, right, PhD students who then became scholars in their own right, um, who helped him found that thing, uh, that school, and um, and they were all women. Um, and uh, very unusually for the beginning of the 20th century, you know, we had, uh, there was a, an indigenous woman, there was a black woman, uh, th th there were migrant women as well in, in that conversation. Um, so it, it's about, even though it's wrapped around Franz Boas, uh, it's mostly about those women and the work that they did to found this discipline and to append all these assumptions about um, race uh, being... Uh, an inevitable uh, biological fact and, and this idea that race and especially notions of racial inferiority or superiority are social constructs and they have nothing to do with, um, you know, determined biology. So it, it's a fascinating kind of account of a discipline told through the perspective of multiple participants um, and also the different ways in which people go uh, about their lives, right? So they all started graduate programs with the same supervisor, uh, but some of them became um, school teachers because they wanted, wanted to go back to their communities, or some of them just kind of became itinerant authors. Some of them became very entrenched in academia. So it's also the, this diversity of paths and, and what it meant for um, yeah, changing our perception of the place of race in the world. I think I'll need to read that. I'm getting into nonfiction. What about you, Belle? Yeah, that definitely sounds like something that would be very interesting. It's a really good read. Yeah, both absolutely. of these books are really good reads. Yeah, I read, but uh, yeah, I totally recommend them. Yeah. So those both of those books um uh, kind of lead us to our next question uh, about the importance of uh, storytelling to human rights, and you have quite an extensive uh, background in international human rights law. So. Uh, what do you see as the role of storytelling um, in the context of international human rights? Yeah, so I, I've been working with human rights for at least 15 years, uh, both in practice and in academia, right? So I worked for International Human Rights Court, um, and then I kind of got into academia, and then now I, I kind of dip in and out of the practice with uh, helping communities and making submissions to cases and that kind of thing. 
Um, so because of having this foot in both the academic and the, the legal practice, I suppose, of human rights advocacy, um, I, I just wanted to kind of set up that, that, that that's my bias in talking about storytelling in the field of human rights. Um, and bearing witness, uh, right, so telling a story about yourself and what you went through is a fundamental technique in human rights advocacy to this day. And um, in, in many ways, it's, by, it's the idea that by exposing the, the sort of the, the quote-unquote sad stories of victims of human rights violations, we can offer um, remedy and we can prompt action, right? So that's the kind of the, the big idea. Um, and also there's this idea that once you put a face onto um, a human rights story, you can actually make it into a human rights story, right? Um, so in the... And that was really important, for instance, in the LGBT plus rights movement, right? This idea of coming out as an act of human rights advocacy uh, because it's a lot more difficult to hate queer people if you know someone who's queer, Right? Um, so, so that's the kind of idea that storytelling plays such an important role. Um, and part of the reason also why this mechanism is important um, is that it, it gives uh, the, the violation of human rights not only a face and a name, but also a tangible consequence. So storytelling, you know, in many ways, kind of sharpens the stakes of human rights quite significantly. So that's on the positive side, right? But then there's a, there's a drawback to this idea of using storytelling for human rights violations or in the context of human rights advocacy. Um, and there, there are two main negative consequences. The first one is that once you, we focus on the individual victims of human rights violations and their stories, we can often lose track of the systemic and the much harder to trace kind of effects of um, certain actions on state actions, right, and policies on human rights. Um, and, and one of the, the examples of that uh, is the idea of what, when we're talking about international criminal justice, right, or kind of bringing the the dictator or, you know, the, 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 the Pol Pot of the world to justice, that is a fantastic act in terms of human rights, but it also kind of loses, by, by focusing all our energy on the acts of one bad individual, uh, we kind of lose track of the fact that actually there were a lot of systemic reasons that facilitated or helped that individual get to that point, right? Um, so in many ways, we by focusing on anti-impunity, we tend to discharge our responsibility and our guilt over uh, the, the, the past um, through one person uh, and then kind of rejecting or denying the fact that there were systemic factors contributing to that situation, and then we do nothing about them, right? Um, so we say that, no, it was just one, this one bad apple who did this horrible thing. Um, so as long as we put this bad apple in jail, we don't need to address uh, the fact that there was this um, great econ economic inequality that led people to taking up arms, right, and to killing people from another ethnic group, that kind of thing. So that's the, kind of the first bad consequence of the reliance on this type of storytelling. Um, and the second one is that um, it's just kind of the politics of selection of which stories we will get to tell, right? So I, I tend to call them in my own, own work the, the kind of the, the, the spearheads of uh, strategic litigation in human rights contexts. Um, 
and I did some work in this in the area of LGBT rights in particular, and it's always this idea, right, that we, we need to choose the right victim, quote unquote, uh, of a human rights violation to then kind of get a remedy that will benefit everyone else, except that it's never everyone else, right? It, it's always everyone who looks like the person we chose. So there's this tendency in um, in the area of LGBT plus rights to choose uh, victims who are uh, white, middle class. Uh, if we're talking about a trans rights case, it's usually a trans woman and a trans woman who can pass as um, a cis woman. Um, and because the idea is to make it all more palatable to the people who are violating your rights, say, look, we're just one of you, right? We're respectable, uh, we're appropriate, right? We're the right, we're good people kind of thing. Um, and that's fine in terms of obtaining gains, but it also kind of just betrays reality on the ground, and it leaves behind people who do not fit the, 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 the life stories of those spearheads, right? So it's a very selective kind of process that gets victories that also then benefit people selectively. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic way of thinking. I uh, admit I haven't thought about it in that way before, it, but it makes total sense, especially considering how individualized um, our system of justice is um, in that we uh, really fail to address some of these systematic concerns because of the nature of the justice system. Exactly. So um, going on more about storytelling, um, Lucas, you've lived and worked in many other countries, including Italy and Brazil. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So do you see a difference at all between literary tradition and storytelling here in Australia and abroad? I love this question, but I also loved how inept I am to answer it. Uh, so I'm just going to preface this by saying that this comes just from my own kind of observation, and that's very biased by the type of literature I'm interested in. Um, so I will say that there are, of course, thematic differences, right? So uh, a story being told by an Australian about Australia um, is going to invoke different things than a story told by an Italian about Italy, right? Um, but uh, in terms of techniques and tropes, uh, I think there, there, there's actually a lot of similarities, um, there's often this urge to connect to a distant past, right, as a source of legitimacy or even magic um, in the storytelling. Um, and I think that speaks very uh, well to the idea of uh, mythos, right, that, that is animating this uh, series. Um, and, and at least in the literature to which I'm usually drawn, there's always this connection to the fantastic and the past. Um, in Australia, that tends to come from uh, an abstract connection to indigeneity, right, um, which can be super well-meaning, but can also come across as a bit appropriative. Um, you know, uh, I'm not endorsing cultural appropriation, but uh, I, I do think it's a really bad thing. But I also think that sometimes it happens when people don't mean it. Um, and uh, people can be steered in a good direction, but I don't think they should be necessarily, you know, they, they shouldn't always lose their careers for doing it if they did it in good faith. But anyway... That's a different conversation. Um, but so I suppose a, a, a lot of uh, whether it's appropriation or not is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, but back to this connection to indigeneity, uh, much, of what's, uh, much of that connection also happens in Brazil um, with uh, a lot of uh, foundational literature in Brazil, right? And uh, 
I'm thinking specifically of Romanticism in Brazil, which was super important to kind of uh, um, forge a national identity in the country. Um, and a lot of it came in precisely claiming this connection to indigeneity as a means of cementing a national identity and a national literary tradition. Um, a great book in this area is by José de Alencar. It's called O Guarani, or The Guarani, um, which also became a, a world-class opera, actually, which was first staged at La Scala in Milan. Um, and then uh, more recently, I think in the 90s, uh, Placido Domingo was doing it all, all over the U.S., um, so it's a really cool opera. The story is fantastic. Uh, it's essentially about this, uh, settler colonial kind of family which gets, uh, their, their paths cross with, um, an indigenous person, right? The Guarani. Guarani is an indigenous people in Brazil, one of the largest ones. Um, and he's the protagonist. So it's all about, yeah, who this person is and, and how, uh, this indigenous man kind of epitomizes uh, Brazil and, and Brazilianity, right? Um, so it has a lot of uh, myth-making around that. Um, now, compared to Italy, um, th there are no indigenous peoples in Italy, right? At least not in the way that we understand indigenous peoples. Um, so the connection to an ancient source of legitimacy or a source of magic uh, tends to echo more like the Etruscans, the Romans, right, in the Renaissance. Um, and, and you can see... Uh, that very pronouncedly in, in authors like Umberto Eco, whom I love, The Name of the Rose, and, and uh, Foucault's Pendulum, uh, and all of that. Um, and uh, But you can also see that a lot in, in very in much more recent and popular Italian literature, um, which, you know, e even the uh, very, quote-unquote, pedestrian kind of literature in Italy will still tend to evoke, like, uh, ruins and, and historic sites as kind of the backdrops uh, for uh, very important scenes in a story, right? So there's always this connection to a myth, and even if it's just like a, a distant echo uh, in the background. Um, but there is something that I think that, that is rather unique to Australia compared to these two countries, um, which is this connection or trying to find this anchor in the past or this magic kind of portal um, in um, in a homeland that is outside of Australia, right? So an overseas homeland, um, at least in novels about the early days of the colony uh, that invariably kind of discuss transportation uh, and tell those stories from the perspective of new arrivals. And one book that I really like in this genre is by uh, Christopher Koch, um, Out of Ireland. Um, it's a really cool book. It's about Van Diemen's Land. Um, and, um, and there is a lot of intersections between... Uh, um, the the settler colonials uh, and uh, indigenous peoples in, in Tasmania, but it actually starts with a whole story about transportation, right? So it actually starts in Ireland and is a transportation through the Caribbean, then to South Africa, then to Australia, um, and uh, and yeah, and how their life kind of developed in the colony and all of that. But again, yeah, the, the, this is just kind of my very impressionistic, imprecise kind of a take on it. Uh, coming from a totally uninformed uh, position and just, yeah, influenced by the novels that, to which I'm drawn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that point about um, the connection to uh, cultural heritage and history, and I think that's very prevalent in a lot of Australian literature especially. And I think uh, one of the uh, 
tropes uh, that stands out to me the most in Australian literature, and I can't help but notice the beautiful landscapes you have behind you there, um, is the role that the land plays. Um, and I was wondering, do you see uh, similar techniques played out? Um, you mentioned the ruins in Italy of uh, Roman heritage, but perhaps in Brazil as well with uh, environmental uh, issues there. Yeah, so there's a very... So romanticism in Brazil and then uh, more into the 20th century, uh, realism and modernism, they, they kind of moved... Um, yeah, I, once they, they, the, the, the project, right, of uh, creating a, a distinctive identity to Brazil that was separate from Portugal um, as a colonizer, uh, once that project was deemed quote-unquote accomplished, um, it, it became much more about literally grounding, right? And uh, so the, the connection to land became much more apparent. And so there is a lot of literature. So my, actually my favorite Brazilian novel is um, is, a, is kind of a, a, an identity myth-making novel from the state where I'm from in Brazil. Um, it's called The Time and the Wind. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of it is about... Uh, yeah, the land and the connection to these uh, empty spaces of uh, pastoral and agricultural land. And uh, so the, the, there is a lot of that as well in, in Brazilian literature uh, at a later stage. Um, so we don't have the same idea of connection to land uh, uh, in Brazil that we do in Australia as kind of a proxy to uh, for indigeneity, right? So indigeneity in Brazil is not played out um, in the same way of uh, it's a connection to a territory kind of thing. Or it is, but not so prominently in, in, the, in the broader literature, right? The indigenous person is not necessarily tied to territory in the same way that it is in the Australian literary um, trope, right? Uh, so it, land plays a slightly different role. Um, in uh, in Brazilian literature, but it is still very prominent. Awesome. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so I guess we're wondering, with your work with uh, human rights law, how do you think that the law can protect the practice and legacy of uh, cultural heritage and oral history and storytelling? Yeah. So that's actually the other big area of my work. And... Uh, and I realize I didn't properly introduce my, my work earlier on. So I have two main areas of uh, specialization, one, one of which is human rights law and the other is cultural heritage law, um, which I tend to describe as, you know, the, the, the things that UNESCO does. Uh, so, you know, the, the Great Barrier Reef, Sydney Opera House, the Uluru. Um, but there, there's a lot more to heritage than just those places, right? Um, one of the domains of heritage, to use the UNESCO terminology, so one of the types of heritage is what we would call intangible cultural heritage, uh, which is what popularly you would refer to as folklore. Um, so in 2003, UNESCO adopted this treaty uh, for the safeguarding of the intangible cultural heritage. Um, so it's about 17 and a half years old now. Um, over 180 countries around the world have already ratified it, um, so th there's almost universal consensus around this idea that we need to protect uh, and safeguard intangible cultural heritage. Um, intangible cultural heritage, right, it, it's this idea of folklore, uh, but the treaty defines it more um, 
broadly as uh, you know the practices and, and traditions uh, that um, as well as the the objects associated with those practices and traditions and and, and, and ways of knowing the world uh, that um, communities uh, groups and sometimes individuals uh, practice and, and consider to be an essential part of their identity and an essential element of what that keeps them connected as a community and as a group, right? Um, so that's essentially the idea of intangible cultural heritage uh, as per UNESCO. And this treaty came about um, to create an inventory uh, of ways of safeguarding, so ways of protecting this practice, and the convention uses the idea of safeguarding uh, instead of protection for a very important reason. And that is that safeguarding is a bit looser than protection, right? The idea of protection is that you, you, you grab it and you hold on to it until everything is good again. And safeguarding is more the idea of creating a little bubble around it that allows that culture to change over time. So that's a crucial idea uh, behind the intangible heritage that is very different from other ways in which the law tends to treat culture more generally, but specifically also uh, myths and storytelling, right? So you look at intellectual property law, it's all about fixating um, the story in a tangible medium, and then you protect that, and you can never, and one of the remedies that copyright gives you is precisely that no one can actually change that story, right, without permission. Um, and intangible heritage says, look, no, because th these things are meant to change, right? It's about the way that communities relate to themselves and to their identity that is meant to change over time. So instead of protecting it tightly, we're just going to create a little bubble around it that allows that heritage to change in the community's own terms, right? So it's allowed it to change without undue external pressures, uh, but still change over time. Um, and that's a really cool thing because it allows us to think differently about what our culture is and how we relate to our identities, but in a way that is actually yeah, going to evolve over time. Um, so that's one of the main things that the, the convention does. Um, and it does so by kind of highlighting um, what they call the representative list of the intangible heritage of humanity. Uh, so people can put up uh, states, right, can, can, can nominate things that are important uh, for them um, and that they want to showcase to the rest of the world um, as representative of their identity. And here we're talking about anything from uh, um, the pizzaiolo uh, craft in Italy to tango in, in Latin America to silk weaving in China. Um, uh, there are over 500 items on this thing. There, we're talking about festivals, um, yurt building in, in Kazakhstan, uh, falconry uh, in the Middle East, and, and so on and so forth. So there, there's all sorts of uh, practices here. Uh, some of which are culinary practices, some of which are dances, songs, storytelling traditions, uh, traditional uh, uh, crafts like weaving techniques, um, and, and even legal systems can be added uh, under the category of uh, ways of uh, seeing, understanding the world and the universe. Uh, so one of the things is like a, an indigenous legal system in uh, in South America, and, and then there's also a traditional um, Water Disputes Tribunal in southern Spain, which is a deserted region, right? So the community very early on organized 
to determine the, the uses of water because it was very scarce in the region. So that also became recognized by UNESCO um, as representative of the identity of that area. Um, so that's one of the main things that the convention does and the, uh, is create this list of representative intangible cultural heritage. And the other thing is actually create an inventory of best practices for safeguarding, right? So it's not so much what the culture is, it's how you go about making sure that people feel connected to it and keep practicing it uh, for present and future generations, which is also really cool because it really puts a, uh, the focus less on the thing and more on how people relate to it, if that makes sense. Um, and, and one of the big things also that this uh, treaty does, which is really important, um, is uh, that it, it, it drives home this idea of community participation. So the um, you cannot you cannot really do proper safeguarding of cultural heritage, including in this case, you know, storytelling and, and myths, uh, without people, the community themselves, from where this heritage originates, actually being involved in the process. Because if you do it without the community, um, they're going to lose interest in it. They're going to stop practicing it. And then the thing is just going to disappear. Right. So you cannot have a, a legal mechanism that protects culture so tightly that the people who actually create it become separated from it. Um, and therefore, the mechanism that was meant to protect this culture, because it isolates the community, actually creates the conditions for this culture to dis disappear. So that's what this treaty is trying to do, is kind of mediate, create a space in which the community is very centrally involved and cares about their culture, even after the law has already kind of captured it, quote unquote. Um, so it's a really good treaty. It's super influential. I wrote an entire book about it. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on and on. But I'll stop here and just add one last thing is that Australia is one of the few countries in the world that has not ratified this treaty. Um, and there are many reasons for it. Um, one of which being a, a, an entire misperception in Australia that this kind of traditional culture um, is uh, indigenous only. Uh, so the, what the government is saying is that they have to figure out um, the constitutional recognition process before they can look at this type of treaty. Um, and it's fair enough. The, the government absolutely needs to figure out constitutional recognition. Um, but that, that shouldn't be an obstacle to the treaty because uh, intangible heritage is not only indigenous. Everyone has intangible heritage, right? Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and, and then as a result of Australia not ratifying this treaty, uh, here the law tends to defer back to intellectual property law, um, which is fine. Uh, but Australia tends to, in my opinion, overuse intellectual property law as a mechanism to safeguard culture, um, which is not always a bad idea, uh, but intellectual property law can be sometimes too protective, if that makes sense. It creates too hard a shell around culture, which doesn't allow it to breathe and change over time, and it can divorce people from it. Um, so, yeah, so there are different legal solutions, but my preferred one is this uh, UNESCO pathway of uh, intangible cultural heritage which is not a perfect system by any means, uh, but it, it does offer a lot of good things. I think that distinction between uh, safeguarding and protection in intellectual property law versus cultural heritage law is really interesting, and that's um, something I wasn't aware of before, so it's great to learn about. 
So thank you so much, Lucas, for joining us today. Uh, I just wanted to say I think it's really interesting um, to have you uh, on this podcast. Um, for me personally, as an arts law student as well, to be able to see the intersection of law and literary studies um, is really uh, very inspirational for, for me and I think a lot of other arts law students uh, who may struggle to see the uh, intersection there sometimes. Uh, Victoria? I would agree with you there. Um, I do the same degree as well. And we were talking just before I was saying how I had a feeling that today's conversation would kind of um, just invigorate me and kind of give me a bit more direction with um, what area of law I want to study later on in life, um, because I knew he'd have a lot of interesting insights to share. Um, and yes, as Belle said, it's I really see the connection now um, before this conversation, I think I was less aware of how um, interconnected storytelling and the law could be. And mm. here we are, I'm leaving this conversation and I'm actually going to think a bit more about, or a lot more, about Australia and the way that the Australian law deals with preserving um, oral storytelling and um, the cultural heritage of Indigenous people as well as, of, you know, Australia is a multicultural country and how, you know, in a way we aren't doing as well as some other nations. <laughs> uh, no, thank you both. Um, it, it is, it, I do find it very interesting, right, how the law interacts with storytelling, right, because mm. the, the law in many ways narrates reality, right? You have to assert the facts and what happened and, and who's right and who's wrong. Um, but then in, in doing so, the law captures and transforms reality, if that makes sense, right? So a narrative is always a very specific reading on, on what's happening. So th th there's a lot to be said about legal practice, right, itself as um, narration, right, and, uh, and imagining a, a form of narration, I suppose. Um, but uh, that, that's a conversation about law and literature as a, a field of... Uh, scholarship and that's a whole different podcast uh <laughs> so I'll, I'll just stop here and thank you again for uh the opportunity and for uh inviting me to sit down with you uh, i had a total blast and i look forward uh to perhaps talking to you or any of your listeners in the future about these uh, themes and many others absolutely thanks so much for joining us thank you my pleasure <laughs>